invite you to the turn to the book of 2 Samuel. As you know, we have been working our way through the Bible, coming through and, and trying to lay down a foundation for you as far as an infrastructure of how the Word of God works. We are in the process here of training men and women in the Word of God, showing them God's plan for their lives, God's plan for this whole universe, and God's plan for this earth. And by doing that, if you remember, we started out coming through the Bible when we started our church over a year ago now, where we started really functioning with the foundational stuff and uh, uh, showing you how that that functions in your life, talking about the different aspects. And then once we got to a point where we were pretty well saturated with that, then we moved to a study that's going to take us probably a year and a half, maybe a little bit longer, depending on how much downtime we have with other things we need to work on. But uh, I'm bringing you through the Bible book by book. And my goal, of course, in this is to not only lay out a structure for you with the Word of God, as we've already stated, but to show you how that that Bible goes together and how it works. You know, and show you all that it has. And obviously in the time that we have on Sunday morning, there's absolutely no way I can give you all of the things. Boy, I, when I put these together, I look at them and I think there's so many things I'd like to say, but you never get it done. I mean, any book of the Bible that you teach right and you teach exhaustively would probably take you a year in itself to go through. So we're, we're focusing on the concepts that really will help you put the Bible together. We have Thursday night that we focus on the Bible, any question you want to ask from the Word of God, and of course we try to tie that all together then with the personal one-on-one -on -one times in the Bible that we just try to lay everything out for you. But as you know, we started last week in the book of the Kings. And the book of the Kings, as I told you, are the four books that deal with 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, and 2 Kings. And uh, those four books bring you through, literally, the monarchy of the nation of Israel. We saw last week how that 1 Samuel was a transitional book that brings you from the times of the judges up to the kings, establishes the monarchy. We saw last week one of the greatest principles that we never learn. And that is getting what you want versus what you need. And I guess if there's no greater lesson that God's people never learn, it's that. Philippians 4, my God shall supply all of your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And of course, in the day and age that we live in, as undisciplined as the Laodicean church is, uh, we usually wind up getting the problems financially, problems socially, problems whatever, by getting what we want over what God wants our need to be. So we talked about that. We talked about how that Samuel, Saul, are the main characters. And as you get halfway through the chapter, you're introduced to a young man named David. And you begin to see how he rises to fame. And at the close of the book, we have the death of Saul and David come to the throne of Israel. Now that brings us to the book of 2 Samuel. And that's where we're at today. And... Uh, the whole book of 2 Samuel is written around one man, and that man is David. In fact, without a doubt, I don't know a man in all the Bible that people probably love more or read more outside of the Lord Jesus Christ than the man David. And I know that Joseph is the greater type of Christ. I know that from just comparing the Scriptures with the Scriptures. But David is in a unique individual. 
I don't know of another man in the Bible where God devoted two whole books to his life. Now, I know you come through the first, you know, Moses writes the first five books of the Bible, and, you know, from Exodus on, it's all dealing with the life of Moses, but it's not dealing specifically with the life of Moses. Moses is caught up in the story, and you learn a lot about Moses while God is doing other things. But David is the only man where God devotes two complete books to his life. I don't know of any other man outside the Lord Jesus Christ that there's more information on in a personal relationship that he had with God than the man David. And uh, to me, it's always been one of the most incredible studies uh, anywhere found uh, in the Word of God. And I said all that to say this. You know at a certain point in your life as a Christian, something changes. Let me rephrase that. Something should change. At some point in your life, and I'm speaking to everybody in this room, most of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you, you'll figure it out very quickly. If you've been around here any length of time at all, you know what I'm going to and what I'm talking about. There comes a certain point in our life as Christians where something changes. And at that point in your life, nothing is ever the same again. I don't mean that you... Don't do dumb things anymore. I'm not talking about the place when Christ comes that you attain sinless perfection. No, no, no. I'm talking about in this life. I'm talking about as you grow through the process of your spiritual life that you come to a point when everything changes. Nothing will ever be the same again. The Bible takes on a deep personal persona that every event, every story, now takes on special significance. And at that point in your life, and a sad thing is, most Christians never get there. Most Christians, all of their lives, cannot get past all the things that they want to do in their lives more than what God wants them to do. And that is a sad thing to say, but that's the truth. I was talking to somebody the other day, and we were talking about the things we talked about on Thursday night on eternity. And that, the guy was talking to me about it, and he said, well, he says, I just don't understand. He said, the thing that boggles my mind, he says, what is God going to have during the millennium? What is God going to have for everybody that's been saved? And she said, you realize that how many millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of people have been saved in the church age? If they're going to reign and rule with Christ on this earth for a thousand years, what are all those people going to do? And then he answered his own question. He looked at me, and he said, wow, that must mean there ain't going to be very many going to reign and rule. That's right. Let's face it. Come on. Come on. Let's get honest this morning. because We're going to get real honest this morning. This is a great book. Life of David is a great life to study. And you're going to go out of here learning some things that you probably never saw before. But let's get honest this morning. How many times we build our millenniums down here? How many times we put the emphasis on what we want over what God wants? Sure we do. We all do. It's a constant struggle. It's a constant battle. And when I look at this and I study the life of David, I begin to see, as I've already said, that there comes a certain point in your life when something changes. I see it in a number of characters in the Bible where God changes their name. There's a distinct difference in Abraham's life when he's called Abram than when God changes his name to Abraham. Something happens and he's never the same. I see it in Sarah. She's called Sarai before and then she's called Sarah. And when that change takes, she's never the same. I see it in Jacob's life. I see his name as Jacob, and there comes a time in his life when he, God changes his name to Israel, and he's never the same. I see it in Paul's life, 
where he's first called Saul, and then something happens in his life, and God changes his name to Paul, and he's never the same again. And I'm telling you, there has to come a time in your life when you're going to stop looking at things as the way they are, and you're going to see them the way God wants you to see them. You're going to quit looking at everything from your own perspective, from your own wants, from your own selfish, lustful desires, and we're going to begin to look at it from God's standpoint. And you begin to look at everything in the Bible through your life, through your relationship with God, instead of through everything else. You know, I teach you, and you've heard me say this, that there's three applications to the Bible. And I've laid them out to you for a lot of years. And that is true. But there's a fourth application that I I never really teach. But I'm going to talk to you about it for a moment this morning because I never teach it simply because I don't know how to teach it. I don't teach it because I feel inadequate to teach it. And there are some things in the Bible that I'm smart enough to know as a preacher that only God can teach you. And I know what my job is. My job is every time we meet, whether it's in a church service, Bible study, or it's one-on-one, my job, solely purpose of my job, is to make sure that when I stand before you or I sit with you or however it goes, that I give you the most honest appraisal of the Word of God and where you're at and what God is doing in His book that I know how to do. My job is to look well to my flocks and understand what men and women need, and then my job, through the Holy Spirit of God, is to bring you to that point. Everything I do, everything I do, every sermon I preach, every Bible study we conduct, every one-on-one scenario that we have, in my mind, is a piece of the puzzle to bring you to the point whereas God changed the name of Abraham, Jacob, Paul, that you come to that point where you see things differently. Now, I'm not very successful at it. And I'm not very successful at it, not because of the inadequacy of the Word of God or not even inadequacy of myself, because you'll never find anybody in this world. You may find somebody who knows the Bible better than me, easy. But you'll never find anybody that believes it more than I do. And you'll never find anybody that enjoys it more than I do. And I look at the problem I have to face is all the opposition we have in the world today that wants to dangle all the dangly things in front of your face and say, this is really what is important. When in actuality, it's not. Now, I taught this a while back, and I don't know if you remembered or not, I taught you a lesson on balance. And I showed you how that balance is the hardest thing in the Christian life. The line of a walk with God is very narrow. Because if you fall to the left, you go back into the world, you go back into the sin with your old friends, and you lose sight of what God wants you to do. How many times we've seen that happen? How many times we've seen somebody come in and get saved? They do good for a couple of weeks, and then bang, you never see them again. You know why? It's simple. It's easy. I mean, it's always hard to accept, but it's always easy to understand. The reason is because at that young life, they're 
they're, they're not able to walk that and with all the other things that draw them away. They fall back into it and they go back into the world and back into their old friends and suddenly God is not as exciting to them as it was the day, you know, that they got shaved or, or whatever. Then you have the other way that God's people fall to the right. And when they fall to the right, they become totally self-righteous. And they come to the place where they actually think that, you know, all wisdom rests with them. And they come into what I call the Pharisee syndrome. Where now suddenly, they know more Bible than anybody else. How many times, how many times, I've started to work with somebody, and I know that many of you know this is true too. You start to work with somebody, and you know what? It just doesn't matter in America. I'm sure you saw it down in South America. How you start to work with somebody, and when you start out, they're really excited about the Bible, and then along the way someplace, they suddenly realize that they know more about the Bible than you do. And they fall into that Pharisee syndrome. And where one is really looks wrong, and the other one really looks right, in essence, they're both out of balance, and they're both wrong. Now, this is the number one reason why there's no compassion in the hearts of God's people today. God's people are a very small minority that follow that line. And I said all that to say this. We're getting ready to study the life of David for a little while this morning. And with the life of David come to light one of the greatest ways to study the Bible. Because there's all kinds of ways to study the Bible. You can go back and lay the Bible out historically. You can go back and study the Bible by topics. You can study, this, you know, prophetically. You can study, uh, you know, all different ways. But one of the ways, one of the ways that is the great, when you come to that point in your life, when you understand what I'm talking about, that you don't look at things the same ever again. That's when character studies in the Bible, that's when character studies in the Word of God actually become the greatest studies that you can have. Because character studies is studying the lives of men and women. And what character studies do is help you keep that balance. Character studies keep you from falling back into the world. It also keeps you from falling back into the apostasy of the self-righteous crowd that you just uh, lift yourself up and you are uh, more than you think you are. It helps you keep the balance. You begin because by studying their life, you begin to look at others through your own life. I've looked at David's life many, many times. And I've thought to myself, my, my, and just the concept of David's life, there lies the picture for you and for me of what our life is. Do you ever notice that David starts out as a shepherd boy? And he winds up being a king. That's the picture for every child of God on the face of this planet. When God saves you, you're to become a shepherd boy. David's greatest time when he was a little boy when he just with him and God, and he loved God, and he didn't need nothing else in his life to face the rigors of the Goliaths, the lions, and the bears. It was just him and God. And David started out as a shepherd, and he wound up as a king. And you know what? When God saves you, you wind up as a shepherd. And someday, someday when Jesus Christ comes, you're going to be a king. 
The problem is that we try to be a king down here instead of the shepherd boy. And when we become the king down here, we enter into the self-righteous mode that so many of God's people find themselves in. And we lose our balance. You know, I'm, I'm so thankful that when God wrote the Bible, that He wrote me a book that shows me the, not only the good things that men do, but the bad things that men do. You imagine how hard it would be for you and for me if God only gave us a Bible that showed us all the good things that men did? You know how discouraged we would become if when we read the Bible, we all we saw was the positive side of man and never saw the struggles of man and the sin of man and the things that man gets into and women get into? You know how defeated we would be? You know how unattainable God would seem to us? if God didn't give us a book that shows us an absolute perfect balance? Psalms chapter 39, verse 5, is probably one of the greatest verses in the Bible. Any child of God that is worth his salt has spent a lot of time there. I would say probably if you found a Christian that was saved for 20, 30, 40 years, who really loved God and really was what they needed to be, if you just kind of throw their Bible down and let it fall into a page where it was opened a lot, probably come to here. But he says this in verse 5, Psalms chapter 39. He says, Behold, thou hast made my days as a handbreadth, and my age is as nothing before thee. Verily every man at his best state is altogether vanity. Now, if there's one thing that you and I need to understand before we go any farther and before we study the life of David, it is that you and I, at our very best, are absolutely nothing when compared to God. The balance in your life and my life is not to go back to the world, but not to fall into the realm of the Pharisees because you deceive yourself in both cases. God's people, sometimes, to me, are absolutely beyond belief. Have you ever wondered why you find some people who absolutely are transfixed on focusing on the sins of others? I'm going to answer that question for you today because the answer is clear when you study the life of David and character studies is the balance that keeps you from going back to the world but keeps you from falling into the Phariseeism that exists in our Christian world today. The reason why people, basic and simple, the reason why people like to focus on other people's sins is because by doing that, they don't have to focus on their own. I have a friend of mine that, there's two men in my life that I can actually say taught me everything I know about the Bible. All my life, I've watched those men get kicked six ways from Sunday. All my life, I've, I've listened to people, and, and I, when I was a young guy, I, I, I had to, I struggled with this because here was two guys that, that 
I thought really loved God and really loved the Bible. And I began to look at it, and I began to study it, and then all the other older guys were coming around saying, oh man, you don't want anything to do with him. And I began to look at that, and I began, as a young man, I began to, I be, and I don't know what's different about me. I know I am different. And I don't know why I'm different. But I, I'm telling you, from the very earliest young Christian wife when I got saved. And I got saved when I was 20. I'm 54. I got saved when I'm 20. I don't know why this is. But the very day I got saved, as far as I was concerned, I took what the Bible said over what anybody else said. And I learned, I began to realize that if that, and I don't know, maybe I'm just, I, I don't know, I don't know how to say it. I'd like to say that I'm just so stupid that I don't know any better to believe that book, but that's quite a, that's quite a compliment for me to give myself. I, I don't know if I can say that about me. But anyway, I know that I began to look at the principles in the Word of God as the way by which I made decisions. And, and I remember as a young man, I remember, I remember as I was reading, somebody had seen me with this guy's book. Oh, and I'd get a 20-minute lecture on, on, on how, what a heretic he was, you know, and, and, all, you know that, uh, and all the things that was going on. And, 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 I, and I began to, and as I grew in this thing, I began to look at it, and I began to think to myself, you know what, I, I, don't, I don't fully understand this, because uh, as I read through the Bible, and I was, I was seeing this guy was teaching me the Bible, and I never found anything wrong in his Bible, but everybody was attacking him because of everything in his, uh, that, in his life, and... So I began just to use the Bible. You know the first thing I did? And I use this principle today. I said, okay, if a guy is that screwed up and he's that off track, then the only way I'm going to know that is I know what the Bible says. I'm going to look at his family. Because I'll tell you the truth. You can't be everything God wants you to be and your family be right. If you're not right with God, your family's going to be a mess. And here I look, and then I got really confused. I saw this guy. And his family loved God. He had three boys. They loved God. They served God. They loved their father. They did everything that they... And, and yet, the guys that were telling me this, their kids wouldn't come to church, didn't want to come to church. They were having problems with them. And at a very young age, I began to see, you know what? That Bible sure makes it simple for me. I had a guy the other day. We were talking. I can't remember who it was now. Got on this guy's website. And he said, man, he said, if you didn't know who he was, he says, the things they, I said, there's just websites that are websites that are websites that are websites that all they do is tear everything, every assassination of his character. They say everything. They do this. It's, he says, if you didn't, and that's just the way it is. I remember another friend of mine had him preach in his church. And this friend of mine was a pastor, you know, that had a pretty good-sized church, and he wanted this guy to come preach for it. Now, in the process, my other friend, his wife left him. And he stayed single for, I don't know, 20 years, and then he got remarried. And the moment he got remarried, all the brethren. You ever notice how some of God's people really like to enjoy the fall of other Christians? It's incredible. And then still walk around and talk about how much they love God? I watched when this man, and this was back in the 70s. I watched when this man got married. 
And I watched preachers drop him, and I watched the crowd assassinate his character. They said everything in a book about him, and they branded him with the concept that now, because you were married and your wife left you and you remarried, you now are living in adultery, and you have no pastor, you have no business pastoring a church. God still blessed him. That always bothered me. Here's a guy that's living in sin, his kids are textbook, and God's still blessing everything he does. Now, I'm not the smartest one in the world, but I am the fastest one in the slow class, and I can read. I thank God the Bible's only second grade English. My friend had him in to preach. And before he got there, my friend's church was up in New England, before he got there, he got a call from the head of the fellowship of New England. And the voice on the other end was one of those big denominational bosses that head up the Laodicean church. And he said to my friend, Brother, when you start like that, you know you're in trouble. He said, Brother, I've heard that you're having brother so-and-so preaching your church. And my friend said, and I love this friend. I love anybody that keeps somebody's feet to the fire. He said, yeah, that's right. He said, brother, he said, I just got one question for you. Ooh, I'm scared already. What is it? He said, I want to know. That man, you know that man's living in adultery. I want to know how do you justify having an adulterer preach in your church. My brother, my buddy called, but without even thinking. My brother said, my buddy said, because I'm an adulterer. The other guy says, what do you mean? He said, the Bible says, he that looketh on a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery in his heart. You mean to tell me you've never done that? And as quietly as the leaves falling on an autumn afternoon, the phone went down and he never called him back again. You see? The same man who rejected my friend would encourage you to read the story of Noah and to learn from his life even though that Noah got naked and got drunk. The same man who would reject you or put you down and lift himself up would encourage you to read the books of Moses and study his life even though Moses had two wives and was a murderer. The same man would it tell you that Abraham was the patriarch of the nation of Israel and yet not worry about the fact that he took Hagar instead of Sarai, produced an illegitimate half-child, and spent 13 years out of fellowship with God, and then lied to Abimelech about his wife and had all kinds of problems in his life. Daniel, at his very best state, let a king bow down and worship him. Job, in his very best state, becomes self-righteous. Solomon, at his very best state, had 600, 400 wives and 600 concubines. David, at his very best state, had four wives to sustain his fleshly, lustful desires and committed adultery and murder. Now, I'm not justifying sin. In fact, the truth of the matter is, 
The more you understand sin in your life by looking at it through your own life, the more you hate sin. This isn't a message that you can justify what you want to do because other people did what they wanted to do and God still used them. God may have still used them, but my dear friend, go back to the character study and study the things that they, the consequences of what they did. My point is simply this. You and me, along with every Pharisee in this world at your best state, or vanity toward God. And the reason why those people want to focus on your sins and my sins and everybody else's sins in the whole wide world is simply because they don't want to look at their own. When you look at your every man in this world, every woman in this world, every circumstance in this world, when you look at it through your own depravity and you know that your very best state is vanity with God, you'll never fall into that superficial pharisaical crowd that always judges everybody else because you'll be too busy judging yourself. Psalm 78, oh, another great one, 37 and verse 38. God says, For their heart was not right with him, neither were they steadfast in his covenant. But he being full of compassion, that's what's lacking in God's people's lives, forgave their iniquity, destroyed them not, yea, many a time he turned his anger away, for he remembered that they were but flesh. A wind that passeth away and cometh not again. And I want to tell you something. That balance in a Christian life is a tough thing. Character studies in the Bible, when you get to that point in your life, when God really begins to use you, and you begin to see things in this life and this world totally different, then you need to begin to look at yourself totally different. And you don't spend a lot of time on somebody else's sin. You know why? Because that book, through those character studies, brings you right back. And you can't see theirs for looking at yours. And if there's anything that will keep your mouth shut about somebody else's problems, it's talking about to God about your own. Now the book of 2 Samuel holds one of the greatest character studies in all the Bible on the life of David. It's a journal of his life. It's a journal of his relationship with God. It's a, it's, a, it's a walk and a journey with his rise to glory, his sin, and his chastisement, and his repentance, all in this book. And yet after it was all said and done, the Bible says he was a man after God's own heart and did what was right all the days in, the, in his life, except in one matter, the Uriah the Hittite. So with that in mind, and that introduction, let me show you how this book lays out. And if there's any two books you need to get down in time in your life, I'm not saying you've got to do it now. It's this book and First Chronicles. Because those two books are the books that God has devoted about the greatest man the world has ever seen as far as getting God's heart. And when you come to that point in your life, when it changes, you're going to see that character studies are the greatest study in the world, and you're going to focus on you're going to focus on your sin and your walk with God and you won't fall back to the world and you won't fall into the pharisaical concept that you're so perfect and everybody is right and all wisdom dies with you. Father, we thank you and praise you now for this book. We ask you to bless us as we come to it and we'll thank you for all that you do now. In Jesus' name, for his sake we ask it. Amen. Now the book breaks down incredibly easy, real easy. Chapter 1 and chapter... Chapter 1 through chapter 10 is David before the matter of Uriah the Hittite. 
Chapter 11 and chapter 12 is David's sin against Uriah. Chapter 13 through chapter 24 is David's life after the matter of Uriah the Hittite. It's real easy. It's real easy. Now, the Bible breaks this story down as a great character study. And as I said, thank God for the fact that he just doesn't show us the good things. Because it's in the negative things that we learn. And through this character study, we find out why it happened the way it happened. And we find the warning to ourselves. Now, let me just say this. Let me talk about the sin of David for a moment. The sin of David was adultery and murder. The pious crowd, who thinks they have never committed those things, always come to the place that they make those sins the most terrible sins in the world. And I'm not saying they're not terrible. What I'm saying is this. Those two sins in the Old Testament were sins that there were no repentance for. There were no sacrifices you could bring. And when you study the life of David, you've got more of a picture than just what is going on here. When you look at this thing and you see it, you begin to understand that in the midst of this story, the Bible says that God gives David the sure mercies of David. The sure mercies of David catapults us in showing us that David's life is a picture of your life and my life. In our lives in this world, the Bible says that, that we, have, we have forgiveness for sin, we have the redemption for sin, but when you study David's life, it's not a matter of the fact that it's these two sins and we beat David up one side and down the other. The picture is that all sin is sin with God and we're talking about anything that takes the power of God out of your life. And we'll talk more about that here in just a minute. Now let's talk about why it happened. You realize in the first ten chapters that there's not one negative thing said about David. We talk about a, it talks about a great nation. It talks about the blessings of God. It talks about David's great victories. It talks about his triumph in battle. It talks about the fact that he has established the king over Judah and Jerusalem. And it shows us very clearly that the house of David is firmly established. But in all of that, we begin to see why it happened, because we learn principle number one, that in all success that we have, there is a real danger. And that danger is balance. One of the verses in life you need to get down sooner or later is Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, which I've heard preached many, many times. I've never heard it preached the way it needs to be preached. And Philippians chapter 3, verse 10 simply says this, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, being made conformable unto his death. And I might suggest to you this morning that in that verse lies the balance, because there's four concepts of that verse. The first is that I may know him. That's the day you got saved. The second one is the power of his resurrection. That's when you learn the Bible and you have power with God and God begins to use you. And in most Christians' lives, that's where it stopped, and that's why they get out of balance. Look at the last two. There forms the balance. The fellowship of his suffering and being made conformable unto his death. Having the power of God in your life and the knowledge of God to go with it without the suffering of God will lead you into sin every time. Because there's no balance. 
And you may know Him saved. You may have the power of God in your life. And you're going to go one or two ways without the suffering and the conformability to His death. You're either going to go back to the world or you're going to take that knowledge and become a Pharisee. The bigger the bullseye on your back, the less you think how great you are. And I'm going to tell you right now, when you take a stand for the Word of God, there is going to be a bullseye on your back. And when you understand that it's the fellowship, fellowship of His suffering, that you suffer, not reign like a king, you're a shepherd right now. And you're out there, and you're out there watching the sheep, and there's lions, there's bears, there's wild animals, and you have to stay alert. You're not a king yet. There's going to be a day when you're a king, but it's not down here. You're to have salvation. You're to have the power of God in your life, and then God dumps you with the sufferings, the persecution, the people after you, all of the things that people do to you to try to destroy you, your family, your life, your ministry. And the bottom line is, my friend, just like my friend, the more they try to destroy you, the more God blesses you. Because, I'm telling you, the balance is salvation, that I know Him, power of His resurrection, the Word of God in your life, and then you balance it with the fellowship of a suffering and being made conformable unto his death. David's life is a picture for us that what we're not to do in his life, and that's get too comfortable. And that's what we do. We get saved. We get the power of God. We have the blessings of God. We have the joy of God. We have the victory of God. And then we go to sleep, and we actually think that we've made it, we've arrived. And my friend, we forget all about the fellowship of his suffering and we forget about being made conformable unto his death. And I may ask you today, and I don't want an answer from you, answer to yourself. What are you suffering for for him today? Now, I'm not talking about our own stupidity. I'm talking about a legitimate stand for something that is right. And that's where Christianity is today. There is no stand. And I'm sure that many of you, as you grow up in the Lord and you learn the Word of God and it comes to that, some of you have already begun to take that stand and you've seen how it's divided families. You've seen how it's divided everything around you and you are getting a quick look at when you take a stand for what's right that you are persecuted and you are beginning to understand the fellowship of His suffering which will in time make you conformable unto His death. David begins to get comfortable. Hey, in 1 Samuel, when he's just a little guy, and he goes out and kills Goliath, he starts to come back into the city, and the people are all running around and chanting, Saul has killed his thousands. David has killed his ten thousands. Saul has killed his thousands. David has killed his ten thousands. And oh, they're lifting up David. And I'm sure as David went on, and David listened to that, and David began to leave the shepherds, and he began to come to the point where God had a job for him, and God anointed him. And I know all of that, how the story goes, but I promise you, if you would go into David's private chambers, you would find probably five or six cases of those bumper stickers that said, Saul has killed his thousands. David has killed his ten thousands. He was believing what they were saying about him. And I'm telling you, there's only one way. There's only one way to keep this balance. And that is the personal application of the Scriptures that you see at your very best were worthless 
At your very best, we're sinful, we're godless. And if it wasn't for the grace of God and the goodness of God and the compassion of God that looks down on me and you and says, oh, but they're just flesh. Oh, no, we hold ourselves up. We castigate others. We take young Christians and Christians that are struggling and because they don't meet our criteria, we step on them with our big boots and our big gospel shoes. And we lose sight of the fact that's taught in this great book about this great character study of David that I don't care how good you think or I think I look, the day that God looked at us, we didn't look too hot. David began to get comfortable with all the glory and all this success. I start to see signs of it. In chapter 6, the Philistines got the Ark of the Covenant. Remember I preached this message about the Ark back on anniversary Sunday and they're bringing that in on a cart back to Jerusalem. David knew better than that. Here they are bringing it in on a cart instead of the staves. What's David doing? Is David out there saying, hey, look, folks, we need to stay biblical in this? No. What he's doing? He's out there dancing around his underwear. Oh, praise God, glory. I've got the charismatic Holy Ghost gobbledygook. Oh, I'm just doing great. Oh, God is so wonderful. He wasn't paying attention. That book says how that ark is supposed to be carried in there. He's too busy running out putting bumper stickets on chariots. He's got too many dinners to go to where they're saying, well, now we've got David here tonight. And oh, he is the greatest man we've ever seen. Oh, David, coming. Oh, man, he's believing that stuff. You know when he was better? He was better when he was running from Saul and Saul trying to kill him. You know when he was better? He was better when he went out to meet the Goliath, the biggest guy in the whole wide world with just five little stones. The preacher said one time, well, there's a lapse of David's faith already. He took five stones because if he really believed God, he just took one. Well, you're an idiot. You don't even know how to read your Bible. My Bible says that Goliath had four brothers. If they wanted to make it a family affair, he was going to go five for five. When he faces Goliath down there in that valley, he goes down there and Goliath has got all kinds of armor. He's 170 feet tall. He weighs 90,000 pounds and he's standing out there like the, uh, like the entrance to Troy, man. And he, he just, his voice is booming down in the valley and everybody's scared. And little David goes out with a little rock and a little sling. And he goes down there and he says, you know what? I don't have a sword and a spear. I'm just coming to you with an old King James 1611 and I'm going to slay you, you Philistine. A little bit later on, he's being chased again. And he says, this is how God works. He says, well, I need a sword. Do you have any swords? Do you have any weapons? I need a sword. They're after me. I need a sword. And about that time, the old boy says, yeah, we got a sword here. This is Goliath's sword. And he said, I'll take it. That's a good one. He took that sword and he's walking down there. And I wasn't there. It doesn't say this in the Bible. But I'm going to tell you this because I understand character studies. As he walked down there and he's thinking what a good sword that is. The Lord's saying, good sword, David? You didn't need one when you fought the guy I used to belong to. Why do you think you need one now? You see, when you're where God wants you to be 
and you're focusing on yourself and you see yourself as you are. I can't be responsible for everybody else and what they think and what they do and how they react to God. I can only be responsible for me. And I'm telling you, the only sword I need is that book right there and everything else will take care of itself. I'm like the lady one time when an old gal had somebody broke into her house. She witnessed everybody. This is the true story. And a, and a guy broke into her house, and she's all by herself, and, she's, and she didn't have nothing to protect herself with, and he's breaking down the door. And she's over there saying, Acts 2.38, preaching to the guy. Nine or ten times, Acts 2.38, Acts 2.38, Acts 2.38. Cops come in and arrested the guy, got him, and they said, well, well what's going on here? And he said, man, I, I, he says, I, I'm the one that broke in. He says, I said, I'm sorry, I picked the wrong house. He said, he said, well, that woman's got 238s in there. <laughs> Kept hearing Acts 238s, 238s. He wasn't going to go in. I guess you had to be there for that, but I always kind of <laughs> liked that. Hey, it's, it's hard. You know why it's hard? Because the original sin was pride. You know what your biggest problem is going to be? It's pride. It's pride. I see it all the time. I see, I see boys out there, you know, and they play softball. And if it doesn't go their way, they're breaking their bats and they're throwing things. They're cussing and throwing a fit, you know, and all these things. I see guys in business. You know, if they make a business deal, you know, they're mad and all this and that. Because it's all about winning. It's all about I'm the best. It's all about I'm better. That's all about golf. I, there's some people who just simply cannot lose. Somebody said one time, well, that's just a male thing. No, no, no. That's the devil's thing. He said in his heart, I will be like the most high God. I won't fail. And when we get out of balance and we don't stay in those character studies, and we don't see who we really are, and all the things that we really are, and we don't realize where we're at, let me tell you something. All right, chapter 1 through chapter 10 shows that is the great success is why it happened. He got out of balance. Now let's see how it happened. We saw why, let's see how. Everybody turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. Oh, you don't want to miss this. You don't want to miss this. And you see, this is what character studies do for you. Character studies keep you balanced because they never allow you to look at somebody else's sin before you look at your own. 2 Samuel 11.1 1, And it came to pass, we saw why, now let's look at how. And it came to pass after the year expired, at the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel. And they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. Right there. If you've got a wide margin Bible, here's one note you want to put in right now. If you don't have a red pencil, you need to put this in red, color it in yellow, and then outline it and put a square around it in purple. 
and then go to the store and buy some of them little stars that you put on kids' foreheads for being good in school and then put it right over the top of it so you can't miss it and write this right next to that verse. It's real simple. David's fatal furlough. We saw why it happened. How did it happen? He got out of the battle. The kings were going to war. David stayed home. He violated a great principle in Ecclesiastes chapter 8 verse 8 which simply says there's no discharge from this war. The moment you get out of the battle, the moment you think yourself something special, and you don't because it's the battle where the fellowship of his sufferings, it's in the trenches. It's down in the mud. It's down there where it stinks and it's yucky and it's everyday grind. That's where the fellowship of the suffering is. Dealing with people on the basis level where you're trying to work with them and deal with them and deal with your own problems and deal with everything. That's where the warfare is. He took a break from it. He said, I'm the king. And it's nice to be the king. And I'm not going to go out to battle today. I'm going to stay back and I'm going to enjoy my kingdom. And let me just say something to you about sin again. Sin isn't what you do. Sin is what you think. You think about it long enough, you'll do it. But don't you ever think that sin starts with something you do. And don't you ever think there's a difference between what you think and what you do. I learned something before I even was saved. You know what that was? As a young, an unsaved man in the army, you know what I learned? I learned there's places that I would take my mind that I would never allow my body to go. David's fatal furlough. He got out of the battle. And his sin starts where our sin starts. And I'm telling you, when we look at, at sin, you have to understand that with God, all sin is sin. The, sol- the start of self-righteousness is thinking that sin isn't what you're doing, but or is what you're doing and not what you're thinking. Well, that Bible says that we somebody said, I mean, somebody said, well, you know what, that, that, those people in, in, are murderers. They ought to just kill those murderers and we just ought to execute all those murderers. Hey, I agree what the Bible says, but you know what the Bible also says? The Bible says that he that hated this brother is a murderer. You ever go back to 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 30, where the Bible says back there that Joab and Abishiah murdered Abner? The Bible says Joab and Abishai slew Abner and called him murderer. And when you go back and read the story, Abishai wasn't anywhere around when Joab killed him. But he hated him. And that's all it takes because when you hate somebody without a cause, when you hate somebody because of your own personal motive, as far as God's concerned, you're a murderer. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16, there's six things that God hates. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16, there's six things. Six, six, six. The seventh is an abomination. All of those seven things are what God's people live to do within churches. You see, there comes a point in your life, and we talked about this, when you never look at things differently, the same way again. And one of the things you never look at is your sin. Because now you see your sin as God sees it. You don't see it as you would like to see it. And there lies our problem. 
We want to see our sin with roses and, and all the beautiful things around it that doesn't make it as black as the next person's. And I'm telling you, my friend, the path to self-righteousness is the attitude that my sin, my big sins aren't the same as my little sins. There are no big sins and little sins. Yes, there may be more severe consequences than others, but as far as God keeping the record, my friend, I'm telling you what. Some of you young people, you're in witchcraft. You say, what do you mean I ain't witchcraft? Some of you parents have kids in witchcraft. You say, what are you talking about? Because the Bible says that rebellion is the sin of witchcraft. You see, that's how one person looks at it, then that's how God looks at it. Somebody says, well, I've never murdered anybody. Have you ever hated anybody in your heart? Somebody says, I've never committed adultery. Have you ever lusted after anybody in your heart? Oh, we like to remove ourselves. David's sin starts where our sin starts. First of all, he gets out of the battle. And then the next thing in chapter 11, verse 2, the Bible says, and you know how the story goes, he goes up to the top of his roof, it's nighttime, he sees Bathsheba taking a bath over the other side, and the Bible says she was beautiful to look upon. Oh, that's right where devil got even Genesis chapter 3, the food was good to look upon. That's the problem. That's where it starts. First John 2.15 says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. All that is in the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And David hits all three branches as he falls to the bottom. And it all started because of the fact that he thought he was better than who he was. And because of the fact that he actually started believing his press releases. And then one day when everybody was out going to war, he stayed in the battle. He didn't stay in the battle. He stayed home. He wasn't going to be one of the common, ordinary people. He had elevated himself like most pastors in a place where he don't touch common man anymore. The best you'll get from most pastors is to touch the hem of their garment as they pass by on the way to do whatever they do. There's no righteousness in their judgment. It's all politics. It's all whatever they want that is the best for them. And you know what happened? She's with child. And then David, like us, embarks on a plan to hide and justify his sin. Now let me just say this to you. We all sin. The Bible says that we lie and deceive ourselves if we say we have no sin. But I agree with Martin Luther. Keep short accounts with God. And when you sin and I sin... The thing to do is confess that sin and he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But when you fall into that self-righteous mode that you just can't see your sin because you're too busy pointing out everybody else's, let me show you how it works. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you. And I just tell you right now. When you sin, just tell God very plainly what it is. Because it's, don't deceive yourself because it's already plain to him. She's with child. And now David is going to come up with a plan. And let me just give you this principle. Whenever you and I sin, and we refuse to get right, and we try to hide it, it only gets deeper and more complicated. Plan A is... 
bring Uriah home. That's a good plan. Boy, I can take care of this. I'll bring him home. He'll go home and be with her. And everybody will just think it's his. Man, have I got this thing worked out. And you know what? That plan didn't work. The tragedy was Uriah was more loyal to the country than the king was. So when plan A failed, plan B, I'll get him drunk. Now we see it get even more complicated. If we get him drunk, he not only violated the law when he had took his wife, but now he violated the law, Habakkuk 2.15, who put up the bottle to his mouth and give his neighbor drink. And he gets him drunk because he thinks if he can get him drunk and he can get him not thinking clearly, then he'll go down in a drunken stupor and the process will be accomplished. And it doesn't work. So plan A out the window, plan B, suddenly it's plan C. And I'm telling you, the deeper it goes, the more desperate you become. And now, he says, I'll kill him. I'll kill him. And so you know what he does. He sends a letter to Joab back by Uriah's own hand that says, put Uriah in the forefront of the battle, and when they come over the top, back off from him, and I want him to be killed. Joab, faithful general, does exactly that. Message comes back. Uriah is dead. David says, got out of that. And then verse 27 says, I love this. And when the morning was passed, not the morning, but her mourning for the death of her husband, David sent and fetched her to his house, and she became his wife, and buried him a son. Great plan. Great plan. Plan A didn't work. Plan B didn't. But my goodness, I finally figured it out, and I got it. And David walking around saying, took care of that. And then I love verse 27, because verse 27 always shows you God's perspective. It says that when the morning was passed, David sent and fetched her to his house, and she became his wife and bare him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. You see, it may have worked out for David, but it didn't work out for God. I'm telling you. Character studies. We saw why it happened. We saw how it happened. Now look at the consequences of what happened. Where chapter 1 through 10 is all good, chapter 13 through chapter 24 is all bad. And let me just say this to you, because you need to understand the whole concept here. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 through 5, talks about the chastisement of God in our lives. It says, For no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness under which are exercised thereby. Oh, we see heartache, and we see tragedy, and we see grief, we see despair, we see family problems. Oh, it's a, it's a terrible thing. I mean, Nathan comes in, and, and, and God judges him out of his own mouth, and David, Nathan tells him a little story about this little guy that had a lamb, and there was a rich guy, and Kim took the little guy's lamb, and David is so enraged in wrath because of this that he says, I don't know who this guy is, but I'll tell you what, if he took that little guy's sheep, he pays fourfold. Nathan said, that's good, David, you're the guy. And through the rest of our story, God judges him out of his own mouth and David loses all four of his boys. Four payments. In 1219, he loses the boy. In 1328, he loses Ammon. In 1818, he loses Absalom. And in 20, verse 10, he loses Amasa. 
Because of his sin, his family fell apart. Rebellion. Absalom rebels against his own father and tries to destroy and take the kingdom. He has murder in his own family. He has incest. He has rape. His own general, Joab, kills two of his own boys. And the trouble in the house of David as the kingdom goes through a traumatic time. Boy, the Bible says that no chastisement for the, this time seemed to be joyous but grievous. But oh, thank God for the rest of that verse. Nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto who are exercised thereby. God wasn't through with David. You know the truth of the matter is, you know what determines when God's through with you? The amazing thing is it isn't God. The amazing thing is it's you. I don't justify sin in anybody's life. But I got more of my own life to take care of, worry about anybody else's. And I know this. I know that in your life and my life, brother, when we don't deal with sin the way that we need to, that I know this, that the hand of God comes down in your life and my life and the hand of God's chastisement hand comes down and deals with us. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter how light you think it is. But I want to say this to you. Oh, here's the beauty of it. Oh, David's life. I've heard all kinds of preachers say all kinds of things about David. I've read every book there is on David. I've heard, I've heard listen to every sermon I can get my hands on. I've heard every preacher say everything all about David except what the Bible says. I heard one preacher say, well, you know, after David sinned with Uriah and Bathsheba, he never was the same. Well, he never won a major victory after that. Well, he never did this, he never did that. Hey, bugwit, i got some news for you. The great things that God said about him, he said after he committed it, not before. It wasn't David was a man after God's own heart. Oops. It wasn't he did that was all days of his life. Oops. God said those things about his life after it took place. Because you know why? And I don't know if you can grasp this or not. God doesn't care where you've been. God doesn't care what you've done. You pay the price for it. Maybe you got away with it. Some people do, some people don't. You know the bottom line is? All God cares about is where you're at this morning. That's all. That's all it is. The only thing that keeps you from being what God wants you to be is you. I don't know anything in anybody's life that'll stop them from being everything God wants them to be other than themselves and not doing what's right. I mean, I don't know what to tell you. Chapter 24, verse 10. Oh, here it comes. David's heart smote him. He numbers the people the second greatest sin. Chapter 24. The numbering of the people was a picture of him you know, trusting in their national numbers instead of trying the power of God. And then the Bible says that God comes down and whacks him again. And the Bible says that this time David's heart smote him. And oh, I'll tell you what. The great missing element, the great components that have to go with first, or excuse me, second Samuel, is Psalms 51 and Psalms 89. They are the missing details because they show you more than what just man sees. God told you last week when we studied the book of 1 Samuel that man looks on the outward appearance, but God sees the heart. God knows we're flesh. That doesn't justify anything wrong that we do. The Bible says, These things that were written unto you, my little children, that you sin not. But in the same breath, he says, But if any man sin, we have an agony with the Father. You know why? Because he knows we're flesh. I don't say that to justify anything. 
Whatever sin you got in your life, whatever sin you had in your life, as far as I'm concerned, if you've done what's right with it and taken it to the Word of God and done what you need to do, you know what? It only gives you a more dire appreciation of your status and you understand and you hate sin more now and disappointing more God now than you did before. Now, I got some terrible news for you. David was better after all this than he was before. Now, I don't know if you know that or not. I don't know if you can grasp that or not. You know why? Because he had a greater concept. He had a greater concept. He understood that he should have died. He knew the law. But God gave him the sure mercies of David, as the Bible talks about in the book of Isaiah. David never forgot that the rest of his life. And he realized he liked Barabbas. In fact, I think Brave and Barabbas have got so much in common. They're the two greatest men in the Bible. What do you think Barabbas must have thought when he saw Christ take his place on that cross? About the same thing that David saw when he saw that God should have killed him, but didn't. And violate, God violated his own Old Testament law for a man named David. You know why? Because David, God saw something in David that he sees in very few people. You see, God has the ability to look beyond our faults. God has the ability that every pastor ought to have, and that is to look beyond the problems that people have and to see the good in them. Most pastors don't have the time to put up with the failures of people because they got their own agendas when they don't understand that they're failures themselves. That the true ministry of the gospel of the Word of God is taking people where they're at and loving them and bringing them along the line. And I'm telling you, David understood it greater after than he did before. And you learn one great truth. God takes you where you're at. And if you're ever going to be successful and come to that place in your life where you get to that point, where your life changes. It'll be based on the fact that you look at everybody else and their deficiencies and their sins and their downfalls and you'll look at them through your own. You won't move yourself out of the way. Make a little extra clause for you and then castigate everybody else. You'll have compa compassion come because of the fact that you look at your sin through Calvary's cross. That you look that you ought to be screaming in hell right now, begging for a drop of water. But it's because of the compassion that God had. That not only did he save you, but he still puts up with us day after day after day. Do you understand how wicked we are this morning? I hear guys all the time saying, well, I just don't understand. I just don't understand. You know, I just don't understand uh, this and I don't understand that. Now, you know what I don't understand? I had a liberal on the radio last week preaching for an hour and 15 minutes saying, well, there can't be a hell. How could a loving God ever put a man in hell? Well, I don't have that problem. My problem is how could a loving God ever want to take somebody like me to heaven? But, oh, his compassion. And he said, oh, many a time. But I turned away because they're just flesh. They're just flesh. Oh, the compassion of God and the love of God. If you ever grasp it, you'll never look down your nose at anybody again. I don't care who comes into your path, whatever their problem is, however bad you, you'll, I don't know how you could ever hate anybody understanding that. I, I just don't know. I don't understand the word hating people. I don't, com I don't comprehend that. I, I, don't, I'm, I don't think I've ever hated anybody in my life. I don't, I don't want to hate anybody. I don't care. It doesn't matter what anybody does to me or says to me or whatever. I don't under, I, me becoming like you doesn't help me out. Oh, I'll tell you. David Hart smote him. The great lesson is David is it's not how you start. 
but it's how you finish. In any place along the path, God will say, you know what? You want to do what's right? Let's do it. I've told you before. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11 and 12 says, Now all these things happen unto them for ensamples. I've quoted it over and over again. And are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world come. And then the next part of that verse, in verse 12, I've never given you, but here's what he says. The reason why he gives us these things, the reason why these things happen to them for in samples and are written for our admonition on whom the ends of the world come, us, very simply. Wherefore, because of what I just said, let him that thinketh, he standeth. Take heed, lest you fall. God wrote this book to show you how rotten and wicked we are. That at your best state, at your best state, when you're puffed up, peacock feathers flying in the wind, your vanity. And the problem we have, and a problem I will never let this church have, as long as I'm here, is ever elevate any of us to the place where we look at everybody else without looking at our own sin first. Character studies. Coming to the place in your life we had never looked at things the same again. That's my job. I look for the day that God changes every one of your names spiritually. And at that point, you never look at the world again the way you once saw it. You never look at the Bible the same way that you once saw it. You don't look at yourself the same way. You don't look at God the same way. And when you get all that under your belt, you'll never look at people the same way. That's what character studies do. It helps you see people as God sees them. It helps us get our self-righteous selves out of the way. It helps us show that however good we think we are, and when we get to that, and we all, <laughs> we all do it, we get to that point where we, we just think we are, have arrived. We haven't. And I want to tell you something. I want to help you get there. I do. I so much before the Lord comes back want to build a, laid, a Philadelphian church in this old latest in church period. I don't want a big church. I just want a right church. I want one that we do it by the book. I told you before I'm accountable to you. You're accountable to me. It's the only way it can work. My job is every time I stand before you is to make sure that I'm as right as God as I can get and that I'm as prayed up, filled up, ready to go, that everything I give you is what God wants you to have. I'm not interested in giving you one thing that Bob Alexander thinks you need. I want Bob Alexander being so in touch with the Holy Spirit of God that he gives you what God wants you to have. And that's the only way it's going to work. And I want to raise people just like that. That's why I'll spend whatever time. That's why I love every one of you. That's why God has brought every one of you here. I, I don't know if you understand that yet. I see a lot of things that maybe some of you don't see, but I know that's true. And on these last days when everybody's doing their own thing, building great works, and playing great games, honest to God, folks, when he comes back, I don't want to have a thousand people. I don't care if we never have 200 people. 
I just want us to be standing when he comes back. I want us to be standing, and I want us to be slashing, and I want us to be cutting. I read a story years and years ago. It had nothing to do with the Bible. It had nothing to do with Christianity. But like so many things out there in the world, the principles are so biblical, and the demonstration of commitment and courage is so overwhelming that I have never forgotten it. I read a story of Two young Marines sent to Vietnam. They were buddies. They grew up together. And back in Vietnam, if they had a buddy system in the Marine Corps that you could go in with your buddy, go through basic training, and you and that buddy could go through the duty station. These two guys were, were lifelong friends. They played ball together as kids. They grew up together. They fought together. They, they did everything. They dated together. They did everything together. They went in the Marine, went through basic together, got sent to Vietnam. They were both there for, oh, I don't know, four or five months, six months of a one-year tour. One night on an ambush patrol out there, as can happen so many times in, in war, in the middle of the night, in the middle of a jungle, they got cut off from the rest of their platoon. They were setting up an ambush and got ambushed themselves, and the whole squad had to pull back, and the one kid got wounded in the leg, and his buddy wasn't going to leave him. And he stayed there with him while the rest of the platoon, platoon pulled back. And they got back and they set up their perimeter and they, as they always do, they start taking a quick roll call down the line to find out they got everybody and those two boys were missing. And those two boys were stuck out there all by themselves. And all night long, the VC knew that they only had a couple of guys and all night long, they stayed out there and those boys could hear those boys shooting. After two or three hours, all the shooting stopped. Next morning, they got air support. They went to find their boys because they weren't going to leave anybody out in that field. They knew they were dead. man wrote the story. was a chaplain to the 173rd Airborne Division. He said, I'll never forget it as long as I live. He said, we walked into that little clearing, and there were those two boys. They had taken their cartridge belts. They'd wrap them around each other back to back. And they stood there in the middle of that onslaught of all those enemy soldiers. And they wasn't going to leave each other. And they made sure they wasn't by strapping themselves and tying themselves back to back. That if they died, they died together. They ran out of ammo. The Viet Cong come in and mutilated the bodies and bayoneted them and killed them. And those two boys were found. But they were found back to back. And I'll tell you what. That's all I want for us. I want us to go out back to back. I want us bonded together so tightly around that book that when all the onslaught comes or whatever happens and this old world just goes to pieces as it already is and attacks whatever's doing what's right, when they find us when the Lord comes that we're all wrapped together back to back, maybe out of ammo, maybe dead, but inseparable. That's what it means for Christians to be Christians. That's what it means. Loving each other enough to die for each other. That's David. David is one of the greatest studies in the Bible. And oh, I thank God. I thank God for God's mercy and God's grace in all of our lives. And I'm telling you, 
when you come to that point in your life, it's my job to get you there. You'll understand. Character studies will show you so much about yourself that you won't have time to worry about anybody else. I don't want this the church to be like everybody else. I want it to be God's church. And I promise you right now, I'll do my best to do my part and I'll help you. But you've got to help me. I can't do it all for you. I can only bring you so far. You have to do the rest. Father,